Plug the radio in. Yeah, I can't get past the evidence. I can't get past the proof. I can't get past the evidence. It's impossible to do. Can't you all see man? I can't deny the truth. I can't get past the evidence of you. Welcome, everyone, once again for another episode of Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we teach you how to defend the truth of Christianity. Hello, my name is Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Kirk Hastings. It looks like we may be getting some more radio stations here soon. Oh, wow. that is some good news. Yeah. We will let everybody in on that as things develop. You can check us out on evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Kirk and I have been going over critical thinking skills because there was a study published that showed that kids in college are not learning how to think critically. So they're not expanding their ability to analyze difficult arguments and come to a proper conclusion. So we thought we would do our part and help people because this is a very important area when it comes to issues about is Christianity true? What are the evidences that support Christianity? So that's what we're doing. Kirk's good to have you back again today. Thank you. Good to be here. I've got a couple quotes of the day. This one is from a man by the name of Frederick Bastiat. He lived during the early 1800s, and he was a political writer and an economics writer. And this quote was just too good to pass up, so I have to read this couple of paragraphs for our listeners. He says, we hold from God the gift which includes all others. This gift is life, physical, intellectual, and moral life. But life cannot maintain itself alone. The creator of life has entrusted us with the responsibility of preserving, developing, and perfecting it. In order that we may accomplish this, he has provided us with a collection of marvelous faculties, and he has put us in the midst of a variety of natural resources. By the application of our faculties to these natural resources, we convert them into products and use them. This process is necessary in order that life may run its appointed course. Life, faculties, production, in other words, individuality, liberty, property, this is man. And in spite of the cunning of artful political leaders, these three gifts from God precede all human legislation and are superior to it. Life, liberty, and property do not exist because men have made laws. On the contrary, it was the fact that life, liberty, and property existed beforehand that caused men to make laws in the first place. How do you like that? Hmm. Interesting, especially the part about the politicians trying to take this stuff away. <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I think I'm going to pull some more quotes from his little book for future shows. And he said this almost, what, 200 years ago? Yep, almost 200 years ago. Things haven't changed much, have they? No, that's true. Well, this is another quote. This is from Alan Sandage on design. It's from his book, A Scientist Reflects on Religious Belief. So he says, the world is too complicated in all its parts and interconnections to be due to chance alone. I am convinced that the existence of life with all its order in each of its organisms 
is simply too well put together. Each part of a living thing depends on all its other parts to function. How does each part know? How is each part specified at conception? The more one learns of biochemistry, the more unbelievable it becomes unless there is some type of organizing principle and architect for believers. Mm. Alan Sandage, so another Christian scientist. All right. Well, we don't have any headline news to share, but Kirk and I had a great experience. We got a chance to debate a couple of atheists. These were the two atheists that we had debated live on the show a couple months back. So we went on their podcast and recorded a show for them. And we had a discussion, kind of an informal debate, open dialogue about whether Christianity was true or not. Given the fact that God existed, why should someone become a Christian? So it was a great experience. And it, although it did last a long time, didn't it, Kirk? It lasted a lot longer than we had agreed to. We were supposed to only talk for an hour and a half, but they really kept us on the line. It was over um, two hours. They, at the time, was up. They wanted to keep going. They had a lot of stuff that they wanted to try and throw at us. So I think we defended that pretty well. But it was good. We, we started out with the Kalam argument, and it was something that we had left off at the end of our last debate and hadn't really gotten a chance to go into in depth. So we ran over the Kalam argument, which shows that because there's a beginning to the universe, there must be a cause, there must be a supernatural cause outside of nature. And they tried several ways to refute that and really weren't able to do it. They just basically said that you know, they weren't going to accept that anything exists outside of nature. So even some of the ideas that we brought up, propositions, numbers, those kinds of things, they just simply refused to believe that anything exists outside of nature. So it puts them in this kind of bind where they have to explain nature with nature. So it's almost like trying to explain all of my own actions, including my own birth. How do I explain my own birth as one of my actions? How did you create yourself? Exactly. <laughs> how so did you, how did you get yourself quest. started? <laughs> they're on an absolutely hopeless quest to try to find some natural explanation. And, you know, so they just basically had to ignore the Kalam argument, which is a tightly woven logical argument that shows that it is logically necessary that there must be something outside of nature that got it started. Of course, you've probably mentioned before that one of the major proponents of that argument today is William Lane Craig, who does an excellent job of laying that out. Yep. In fact, a... that's who I got that from. He was one of my professors at Biola. Oh, that must have been really interesting. Oh, yeah. Fabulous guy. Him. Yeah. Fabulous his his guy. books are amazing. I've read a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Some of them, I've been reading one of his for the past seven years because it's 700 pages and it's densely packed philosophy and it wow. takes a long time. <laughs> so I, I keep putting it aside. I haven't tried to tackle his scholarly books. I go after his popular books. Yes. Oh, they're really good. That are a yeah, little easier good. for the layperson to understand. Do you have his latest one on guard? No, I don't have that one yet. Okay. Well, he uh, goes over the... Kalam argument in that one. So, okay. so that's a really good. I don't have it yet either, but it's out there for people to get. It's a, I recommend it highly. Yes. And I'll be uh, going with Dr. Craig to Israel in a couple of months. So Really? Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. So I'll have lots to report on. 
Can I stow away in your suitcase? Sure, why not? (laughs) Yeah, that's going to be early part of May. Wow, that should be a really neat experience. Yep, yep. So then in the debate, as you remember, Kirk, we went on to give evidences why, given that God does exist, according to the Kalam argument, why someone ought to become a Christian. And we talked about the moral character of Jesus as being the primary reason to examine Christianity and to follow Jesus. We talked about the reliability of the Gospels. We went over the unbroken chain of teachers from the apostles all the way up into the foundation of the church in the third and fourth centuries, so that there's no time when there was not people who knew the teachings of the apostles and what they had to say about Jesus and the resurrection. We looked at the undesigned coincidences in the Bible that give evidence that it was written by eyewitnesses, and then we gave arguments about the incidental allusions to historical facts and and issues that could not have been written by anyone outside of the first century. And then they did actually agree with us, or at least conceded the fact that the scripture was written during the first century. So I thought that was pretty good, because a lot of atheists will try to say that, no, it was written the second or third century. But really, in scholarly circles, that's been pretty well settled, hasn't it? Oh, it is. It is. But, you know, some, well, some atheists, uh, in fact, these guys have on their program said that they didn't really even think that Jesus maybe even existed at all. So they, they'll believe a lot of bizarre things that scholars simply won't that's, that's agree to, even the critical scholars. Yeah. Well, that kind of stuff is basically, you might hear that on TV or, you know, some TV show or something, but really, you know, when you're talking about scholarly circles where these guys are really serious about what they're studying and they use scholarly methods and stuff, they, you know, the idea that Jesus didn't exist, I mean, they'll, they'll laugh right. their heads off if you even suggest that. Right. That's pretty In much... Fact- pretty much been proved. Absolutely. In fact, we went over 12 of the facts that are agreed upon by all of the scholars, including the critical scholars, the 12 facts that have to deal with the resurrection and that there's no naturalistic explanation for those 12 facts. And instead of using what they have said on their podcasts is their belief that Jesus had a twin, and that's the explanation— they switched and went to back to the old hallucination theory, which has been disproved for a long, long time. So You mean, you mean um, the mass hallucination theory, that hundreds of people at the same time had the same hallucination? <laughs> right, that's right. And even individuals later, I mean, you know, the, the men on their road to Emmaus and on and on. Yeah. You know, all those multiple sightings where they were all hallucinations, including group hallucinations. So These guys must have all been sniffing the same stuff, huh? Yeah, something like that. Somebody was having a party uh, back in the first century there. And, of course, it really just doesn't add up. So they, what they said at the end was that they just simply wouldn't accept any non-naturalistic explanation for the facts, that they had to come up with some kind of a naturalistic explanation, which went against what the discussion was all about, which was, given that God exists, why not believe in Christianity? So they just fell back on their faith in the religion of atheism and that uh, there's nothing outside of nature. So. Right. so it was a good chance to give lots of good arguments for Christianity, and unfortunately they stuck to their guns, but that wasn't surprising. We were, we were expecting that they would. No, I wasn't expecting any uh, sudden conversions or anything. No, no. Let's see, I've got a listener email. I like to go over some of the emails that we get sent in. This one 
is from an atheist, and we've talked to him in the past. His first name is Park, so we've covered one of his letters in the past, but this one that he wrote was uh, much more condescending, very smug, and really didn't want to talk issues, didn't want to talk evidences, but demanded to know what was going on psychologically with us, what was going on mentally that we couldn't simply accept the fact of evolution. So I wrote a brief answer to him that says, Park, your email such a mixture of ad hominem, hasty generalizations, non sequiturs, and other fallacious thinking that I'm not sure if you're really serious or just very sarcastic. If you want to try to get inside the mind of someone, I suggest that you set aside your biases and actually examine the evidence for their position instead of sweeping it aside. But perhaps it gives you comfort to believe the way you do. Now, I, I said that, even though that's a a fallacious argument. I said that because it's a repeat of what he happened to say. It's blaming somebody's psychology on why they believe what they do instead of actually addressing the issues. And then I said, it certainly is less work. If you are truly serious, email me back when you can explain even a single evidence for intelligent design in a cogent fashion in a way that a supporter would, then I'll know that you actually understand it. Regards. Hmm. So, put up or shut up, basically. That, um, that's an interesting way to argue, to tell the other person, okay, you take my position and tell me why you think we believe what we believe, and then we'll know that you understand right. a, the that's position right. other than your own. That's right. And that's part of these critical thinking skills that we're discussing, that we have been discussing for the past couple of weeks. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And this is the Evidence and Worldview radio show that defends Christianity. You can find us on evidenceforfaith.com, evidence4faith.com. You can listen to our previous shows about critical thinking skills. And really, Parks letter was a real example of just fallacies. I mentioned several of them when I wrote back to him, and several of them we've discussed in the past. In last week's show, we left off with the post hoc fallacy. Do you remember what that one, Kirk? Yes. That's, that's, that's the one where if you have a correlation between two things, it's false to think that one caused the other. Sure. So, for example, the big one these days is global warming. Right. You know, their big argument is that carbon dioxide is rising, and as carbon dioxide rises, temperature of the Earth also rises. And that, therefore, is proof that carbon dioxide causes the Earth to warm up, and we should stop polluting, stop breathing out, I guess, stop <laughs> producing carbon dioxide. And is, isn't part of the argument that they feel that most of the carbon dioxide is coming from our vehicles and things like that? Right. It's man-made from industry, from vehicles. Yep. So that's what the these treaties that they're trying to get governments to sign to reduce carbon dioxide, all because of this fallacious thinking, this post hoc, that because carbon dioxide is going up and temperature is going up, that carbon dioxide is is the cause. Right. In reality, we now know since about 2005, we know, now know the real cause of Earth's temperature rise, which is coming from the sun, the solar variations in the sun's output, and that causes the oceans to warm up, and the oceans 
release carbon dioxide. So it's actually the opposite. So it's actually so, a natural source that's putting out most of the carbon dioxide, not the cars and the buses and stuff. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And as, a, as for whether carbon dioxide is a pollutant or not, the range of carbon dioxide values that would allow for optimal plant growth and plant life on the earth, there's a specific range. We are at the very bottom end of that range. So actually, plant life struggles to stay alive because it's near the, it's where the atmosphere has about as little carbon dioxide in it as, as is necessary. If wow. it got lower, we'd actually have problems with a lot of plants dying. Wow. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, so so it seems like it would be much better for the Earth to have uh, much more carbon dioxide. Then, of course, if you the question of you know does it cause greenhouse effects? It appears that it might, but it's at far greater amounts than is current, and far greater amounts than would be good for uh, plant life too. So wow, that's so there's a perfect example of post hoc. Just because two things are happening at the same time doesn't mean one is causing the other. Exactly right. Here's an example that a Christian might use. If I say to you, hey, Kirk, Joe got saved last week. Now he's a changed man. Okay? We got two things going on, right? Mm -hmm. He said he got saved, and he's a different person. Does one necessarily follow from the other? Doesn't have to. No, it doesn't it have could, to. So that's, but... you got, that's right. It could, but you have to be careful when you make these arguments. It doesn't mean, just because someone changes their behavior, doesn't mean they got saved. Right. So you do have to be careful. It, it, it's better. How would you know? Well, you'd look at, you know, people's lifetime uh, or over a long period of time, let's put it that way. Right. And maybe look at somebody like uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who spent her whole life in ministry to the handicapped, mm -hmm. or Alexander Solzhenitsyn, or, you know, any one of dozens of people we could name that who've lived a, a changed life and really did have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, here's an example. Here's another example of a post hoc fallacy. Do you remember when a journalist by the name of Andrew Sullivan in the New York Times, right after, this was right after 9-11, like a day or two in the New York Times, he blamed this on believing in an afterlife. If only people wouldn't believe in an afterlife, then they wouldn't do terroristic acts. Then they wouldn't like, fly airplanes into buildings. <laughs> right. So it's, there's a correlation there, right? I mean, the guys who flew into the building did believe in an afterlife, right? Uh-huh. At least as so, far as we know. <laughs> so do you think that them believing in an afterlife is what caused them to fly into the buildings? That, no, of course. That's, that's of course a pretty not. simplistic... Uh, Right. But he missed it, right? Andrew Sullivan missed it. He thought that that was true. Of course, their religious beliefs and their political beliefs and their personalities and the, the, their behavior patterns in life up to that point, none of that stuff mattered. Apparently not. Not to Andrew Sullivan. He thought. He thought so that's an example of a post hoc fallacy. Gotcha. So what if uh, maybe a professor says to your child going to college that, that their belief is sociological because they grew up in a, in a Christian home. Hmm. Okay? So the only reason they believe is because they grew up in a Christian home. Okay. 
So what about all the people that are Christian that didn't grow up in a Christian home? <laughs> exactly. Yes, that's right. How do we explain them? <laughs> that's right. And besides, that, and still doesn't, that still doesn't mean anything. Because what if the child has a reason other than that they grew up in a Christian home? Like, what if, well, you know, the child says, well, I examined the evidences for the resurrection, and I believe that Jesus rose from the <clears throat> dead, and so I've decided to follow him. Okay. There's your there's your actual reason. There's your actual cause, not because they grew up in a Christian home. Right. So this post hoc one can be pretty sneaky. Uh, people fall for it all the time, and then they'll base their arguments on it. So you have to be careful. And and this is actually, I think this brings up a good point too, in that we should ask our kids why they believe. You know why why are you a Christian? Is it just because mommy and daddy say so? Right? Is it just because you You've grown up in a Christian home. Listen to what they say. Listen to the answer that they give. <laughs> do they give a cause for their belief, or do they give a reason for it? That if re- they give a cause, such as, well, Pastor Johnson told me I ought to, <laughs> okay? Or, well, yeah, I've been a Christian ever since I can remember, you know? Or, yeah, mommy and daddy said I should. Or, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians. That might be a cause, but that's not a reason. That reminds me of a little incident from my childhood. I was about maybe five or six years old, I remember, and the little kid next door that I used to play with, he came over one day and he said, what religion are you? Mm -hmm. And I was totally taken aback by that. I was like, I have no idea what he's talking about. So I remember running inside. You weren't any religion, right? No, we, we didn't go to church or anything, so I really didn't know, you know, I don't know what religion we are. So I remember running inside and asking my mother quick, Mom, Mom, what religion are we? And she said, she said, we're Protestant. So I went back and I said, we're Protestant. And the kid said, okay. And he accepted that. But I was like, what's a Protestant? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's a great example, right? So that's, so if somebody asks you, why are you a Protestant? You would have said, oh, because my, my mother me. said so. <laughs> that's right. So that's not a reason. So if you, what your kids need is reasons to believe, and right. that's a great reason why they ought to be listening to uh, our show and our podcasts so that they can have real evidence and real reasons for believing in Christianity. And unfortunately, I think that's a lot of the reason why we've had a lot of people fall away from Christianity in the last uh, three, four, five decades, because they weren't given reasons to believe in it when they grew up. They were just told, well, you're this or you're that, and you're supposed to believe this or that or the other thing. And then they got to be an adult, and it's like, you know, why should I continue to believe this? I don't know why I should believe it, and they just ended up throwing it away. Right, right. If they had been given decent reasons for, you know, why Christianity is, you know, what you, you know, whatever, then, you know, they may have held on to it. If you don't have a solid basis for what you believe in, then it's very easy to be talked out of it. That's right. Yeah, you can be talked out of it because you've never been talked into it. Right. So this is the place to be talked into it. That's what we're here for, right? If you're open to evidence, if you're open to new ideas— you're open to the truth, listen to this show, and we will give you the evidence to believe in Christianity. Sounds good. <laughs> All right, well, let's jump to another fallacy. Let's look at contradictory premises, okay? So this is a fallacy when you're making an argument, and <laughs> your premises... I love contra- this one. 
Yeah, I hear this, this one a lot. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, tell us. A good example of this would be, if God can do anything, then can God make a stone so heavy he can't lift it? Right, right. It's like, can God make a square circle? Huh? Huh? Right. <laughs> so I actually did talk to, uh, you know, I don't think the person was an atheist. The person was kind of like a new age um, movement person. And they thought that, they said that God could do anything, including make a square circle. Right. No, uh, not really. Well, if God can do anything, then that means he can be God and he cannot be God too, right? Yeah, there you go. There's another contradiction. Yeah. Yeah, it's not possible for God to do things that are actually impossible. I I read once uh, C.S. Lewis put it well, I think, when he said that God cannot do the intrinsically impossible. Mm -hmm. In other words, can a circle be a square at the same time? No, that's intrinsically impossible. Right, right. So this example of can can God make a stone so heavy that he can't lift it? The answer would be no. Because that's a nonsense question. That's right. That's right. And then so somebody would say, oh, then he can't do anything. No, he can do anything that's actually possible for him to do. Right. So another, uh, as an example, how about can God lie? Right. That's what I was thinking. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, people could say, oh, well, you know, it says God can't lie, so he can't do anything, everything, right? (laughs) Right. That's right. Yeah. He's not all-powerful because an all-powerful God could lie. (laughs) Right. Right. So that is the fallacy of contradictory premises, and you have to be careful for that. Here's, a, here's another one. Here's a, a way that you hear it even maybe more often than the, the stone-so-heavy one. Right. This is the truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. And I, really? And I, I love to say in response to that, and you know that absolutely, right? <laughs> yes. That's right, because they just said there's no absolute truth. <laughs> so they're making a contradiction. They're making a statement that they're claiming is absolutely true. There is no absolute truth. Right. And then they say truth is relative. So there's there's a whole long list of these contradictory premises, ones that we could do. But I think that basically covers it, you know, that and th- and that's probably one of the most common ones. And and the funny thing is if you disagree with them on this, then they get offended. Yeah, they think it's you're like some a, kind well, of Well, I don't believe truth like, is relative. Well, what's the matter with you? I'm offended right. by that. Right. <laughs> well, if truth is relative, why can't I believe it's whatever I want to believe it is? Exactly. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You're so tolerant of everybody, but you won't tolerate someone who thinks that truth is absolute. Right. Yeah. So they uh, wind up being hypocritical. And contradictory. <laughs> and contradictory. <laughs> All right. Let's look at another fallacy. This one is called hypothesis contrary to fact. All right? What's that about? What is hypothesis contrary to fact? Hmm. Well, well it's there's where, a lot of those around, too. Yep. It's where if you say, if only this hadn't happened, then something else would have happened. Right. Well, guess what? Unless you can actually predict the future, you're not, you're not going to get this one right. Right. So... So this is a really bad way to argue. Well, For critical thinking skills, don't use hypothesis contrary to fact. But we do do this all the time, right? Oh, sure. My gosh, you see this uh, on TV every night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's, here's one. If Bush had not been elected, we would not have gone to war with Iraq. Really? Uh-huh. How does the person know that? Uh-huh. Uh, they have no idea. No. They're, they're, 
the uh, the president who was elected instead of Bush might very well have gone to war with Iraq. Sure. How about if you had not been raised in a Christian home, you would not be a Christian. Right. Again, you have no way of knowing that's true. And we basically discussed that in one of the earlier fallacies. You, you know, what about all the people who became Christians who didn't grow up in a Christian home? Right. So, now, again, some of these fallacies sound like they're right. And, and for this example, we'd may, maybe say probably, right? Okay, now, it, once you introduce probability into it, then you're kind of fine-tuning your argument a little bit. Okay. So, you could make a statement like, if you're raised in a Christian home, you are more likely or more probable that you'll be a Christian. All right, now that might actually be a true statement. That's more reasonable. Yeah, so you just have to be careful how you use these hypotheses contrary to fact and what it is you're trying to prove by them. Right. How about this one? A Christian might say this, if you had not been abused by your father, you would be able to trust in God. Okay. All right. Well, again, you know, I'm sorry, but you can't say that. That is just overreaching the evidence. There may be evidence that many, many atheists don't trust in God because they had an abnormal relationship with their father and they were abused or abandoned. And this has led to psychological problems so that they simply will not trust God for their salvation. But that doesn't mean that every single person who is a is abused by their father is going to be an atheist. Right. So that is the fallacy of hypothesis contrary to fact. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. You can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. All right, let's try another fallacy here. Boy, this one. Do you think we heard this one a lot uh, Wednesday night? How about ad hominem? Oh, yeah. We heard a bit of that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Quite a bit of it, actually. Uh This is to the man. This is poisoning the well. Uh, Actually, poisoning the well could be counted as a separate fallacy sometimes, but it's attacking the person instead of the argument. Right. Do you remember what Leighton had to say about one of the archaeologists, Dr. Wood? Wow, it was nothing but an ad hominem argument. <laughs> that was Bryant Wood? Yeah, Bryant Wood. Right. Dr. Wood. Right. He just basically laughed at his ideas and gave only a single evidence against one of his ideas, which was that a carbon, a carbon dating that was off by 150 years, which seems to me well within the range of accuracy. Since yeah, you're when you're talking about thousands 3, of years, years, that's 150 years isn't that much. Yeah, exactly. Or so that was his years. only actual statement, only actual evidence against what he had to say. Uh-huh. The rest of it was total ad hominem attacks against this man. Yes, so, and they seem to have a problem with uh, one of the archaeologists that I quoted because he said, well, that guy's been dead for 40 years. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, so really? I guess, so I guess that... since he's been dead for 40 years, that means automatically everything he said while he was alive is untrue. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and he was he was after archaeologists that I quoted in when I was talking about the evidence for Joseph in Egypt, and who's a Russian archaeologist, and 
the, it wasn't Dr. Wood. He, he seemed to think it was Dr. Wood, but it wasn't. It was totally, totally different guy. I know Dr. Wood. I've met him a couple of times. Totally different person. They were actually this, this other uh, Russian archaeologist. Okay. So that was pretty funny. Now, I seem to recall, too, that they had a problem with the couple of people that we used for sources because, like a couple of the archaeologists, because they said, well, they believe that the Bible is inerrant. Therefore, that means as archaeologists, we can't trust anything they say. Yeah, exactly. Now, we could have turned that around and said, well, okay, you guys are atheists. Then does that mean, since everything you say supports atheism, does that mean we can't believe anything you say? Exactly right. Exactly good. Good. A good example of critical thinking. Yep. How about this for an ad hominem attack? We shouldn't believe in evolution. After all, Darwin believed monkeys can turn into men. (laughs) Okay. See, that's uh, something that a Christian might say. But that's an ad hominem attack. You're appealing to something unpleasant that you think about Darwin. You know, Darwin believed something crazy. You can't believe anything he says. Right. Or you could could have just as easily have said, oh, I don't believe anything that guy said because he had a mole on his nose. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, any kind of of argument to the man, to the person, instead of dealing with the issues that he's talking about. Right. There's a lot of that kind of arguing that goes on in politics today. Oh, absolutely. If you don't agree with what, you know, your political opponent says, then go after him. Try to find a a scandal in his life or whatever to, you know, undermine his his credibility. Right. That's right. Yeah, you see that all the time. And the poisoning the well is a variation of this where you do this ahead of time. So you you are going to have a debate and you get to go first. So so then you introduce your opponent, and you say, now you're going to hear from, oh, Assemblyman Bill Smith, that liar. Okay. <laughs> so so that's poisoning the well, because now Bill Smith's got to get up there and say something, and everyone thinks he's a liar. So it's called poisoning the well, where beforehand you threw something in the well so that now anybody who tries to drink from this well, thinks they're going to get poisoned, so they, yeah, they don't like, want to... Once the other guy stands up and he tries to say, oh, oh, I'm, I'm not a liar, I'm not a liar, <laughs> he sounds like he's just being defensive, or covering exactly. up, or whatever. Yep. So that's an ad hominem uh, argument uh, ahead of the person speaking. Right. So, so that's it's called poisoning, poisoning the well ahead of time. Exactly. <laughs> All right, let's see, how about another one? How about stigma words? Oh. This one we get all the time in the arguments between theists and atheists. Oh, I uh, like to write letters just... into the newspaper about things every once in a while, and then I get people writing in response, and I get called all kinds of things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, um, and this is where they'll use really loaded terms. Right. Okay? Yep. So, like fundamentalist, saying somebody only believes something dogmatically— Claiming that you have blind faith, right? So all these terms are used to stigmatize you. Right. They have pejorative or negative connotations, and so they want to label you, basically. That's what they're trying to do is label you. Yeah. Of course, some of the famous ones are you're intolerant, um, you're prejudiced, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe, you're et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. All those big, powerful, scary words they label their opponents with instead of actually addressing the 
the evidences and the arguments of the the opponents. Right. This this word fundamentalist it's it's funny because it it used to be a very valuable word. It used to be non-pejorative. It's kind of like have you heard the derivation of the word radical? No. If you're a radical, okay, that's bad, right? Right. Well, radical comes from the word for root. Okay, like a radish, right? right? A root. So a radical really originally meant somebody who's getting to the root of the problem. Okay. Somebody who's, you know, getting down to the grassroots, somebody's getting to the to the real issues. Right. That became and but then of course it was used in a pejorative means, so now you're that nasty radical. The same <laughs> thing was with fundamentalists. In the nineteen tens and nineteen twenties, there were some Christians who wanted to band together all the different denominations based on what were the fundamental views that all Christians believed, no matter what kind of denomination you were in. What right. were the basic doctrines that, if you believed that, then we could all come together and say, hey, we're Christian brothers, even though you know I'm a Baptist and you're a Lutheran or, or vice versa— Right. We still believe these foundational, these basic and simple truths. It's an example of it is the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He wrote about what was mere Christianity. What were the basics? Or there's John Stott's book, Basic Christianity. What right. are the basics that we can all agree on? What what things do all Christians in all parts of the world throughout all of the time of the Christian uh, church? What have we all agreed on is Christianity, and that was the fundamentals. So they wrote a series of essays and had them published, and they were bound together uh, in a book called The Fundamentals. And this then, instead of, it's obviously a very respectable, logical, sensible way of looking at how Christians could come together and unite, but what, what happened? It was turned against them. And it was used to badger them and to name call. So now, when you say someone's a fundamentalist, you mean something bad by it. Right. You mean some kind of religious nutcase. Exactly. Yep. So so that is uh, stigma words. How about false analogy? This you see a lot, too. Yep. False analogy is when you make a comparison and the two things are not not alike and they're and they're not alike in a way that that leads someone to a correct c- conclusion right so things are thrown in to kind of throw someone off base you know to to a lot of times this is done as a pejorative you know for instance religion is just a crutch yeah okay well, why are they saying that they want you to think about a crutch they don't want you to think about christianity or uh, religious ideas they want you to think about you know, crutch, you know, that's bad. Um, oh, that's just something you're leaning on because you're not a strong person. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a false analogy. You know, religion is, are not like crutches. You know what, if you wanted to do, especially Christianity, if you wanted to do a better analogy, it'd be, it'd be Christianity is a hospital. Okay. <laughs> that would be a better, you know, that's Christianity pretty close. Can, yeah, help straighten out your thinking. Uh, help straighten out your social life. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, help your marriage. Um, help you overcome depression. Help you overcome addictions. You know, yeah. uh, it, it, there's a better uh, analogy. 
How about uh, the Bible is just a bunch of myths? Oh, yeah, sure. There's, a, there's another false analogy <laughs> for you. Just a bunch of legends and fancy stories that aren't true. Once upon a time. Uh-huh. Yep. You run into these a lot, false analogies, and you just have to realize, you know, for what they are. And, of course, you don't want to use them yourself. You don't want to use false analogies. You want to try to make sure that the analogy that you're giving, that, you know, X is like Y, really is a good analogy. You know, really does point to the truth of what you're trying to say. Right. Yeah, I was just thinking, I wonder where the book of Apollo is in the Old Testament. Oh, right. <laughs> I haven't been able to find that one. Or the book nope. of Zeus. I can't find that one either. Nope, you gotta you gotta go to the to the uh Greek authors <laughs> there. So yeah, I have to pull out pull out a few from my library and, and you can read all about the Greek Greek gods. <laughs> all right, let's see. We've got some more to go through, so let's do how about this one? This one's got a big I don't uh, even, sounding name. I don't even think I can pronounce this one. <laughs> Odd misericordium. Odd Very good. misericordium. Okay. Appealing to sentiment. Appealing to misery. Okay. Appealing to bad feelings. Okay? So okay. I'm appealing to your emotions. No. Odd misericordium. <laughs> you know, let's see. What could we say? Oh, people shouldn't have guns because look at the terrible loss of human life. See? There you go. Okay. That's odd misericordium. Guns bring so much suffering to people. We don't want any guns. Right. Eh, well. Well, take them all okay. away from the police then. Right. Right. <laughs> how, about, how about something a Christian might say? I would never send anyone to hell, and God is surely kinder than I am. So <laughs> I don't believe in hell either. Okay. Right. Okay, you're, well, you're just appealing to sentiment, okay? That doesn't really have any bearing on the issue of why people go to hell or not. No, just actually, I, I would argue that God doesn't send anyone to hell either. Yes, why not? We choose to go there. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Hell is where God is not. Right, so, so if you reject God, that's the only other place you have left. Sorry. <laughs> yep. And this was basically Bertrand Russell's argument in his book, why I am not a Christian. It was. It all stemmed around that he didn't like the idea of hell. He didn't think it was a nice doctrine. So he didn't want to be a Christian because... Well, it, it's not particularly nice, but unfortunately it's true. Right. And you know what? One of those, the fact that it's not nice, that goes along with one of the fallacies that we talked about before, which was the post hoc fallacy. Some people will say that Christianity is just wish fulfillment, Right. Right. You know, they know they be, they become happier when they're Christians, and so they're just fulfilling their wishes. But really, a lot of things about Christianity are not that nice. You no. know, we run the risk of uh, going to hell for one thing. Right. So, and we have know, to admit are, that we're sinners in order to, to seek right. forgiveness from God for it. That's right. You have to obey the law of Christ, love one another. You know, these things are not terribly easy. You have to love your enemies. Absolutely. Yeah, if we were coming up with wish fulfillment, we could have done a better job than that. <laughs> exactly. There are some Eastern religions that are much more, put you in much more of a happy place. Yeah, nirvana. <laughs> nirvana, exactly. <laughs> and reincarnation. Hey, anything I do wrong, I get to go over. No problem. Yeah, I get another chance to do it again. <laughs> exactly. I like that one. <laughs> All right. Let's see. How, let's, how about uh, this one? 
a genetic fallacy. Now, this one we did. I did pick the most popular ones to go over, and this one again you do see quite a bit. The genetic fallacy. All right, what's the genetic fallacy? This is thinking that something is false because of why or how or where it began. Okay, so that's where you know you get the word Genesis from beginnings. Right. The genetic fallacy. Okay. So, just because of where an idea came from or an argument, or a piece of evidence, it can't be right because of where it came from. Okay. All right? So, so that, as that an example... Sounds like, that sounds like the problem that the atheists had when we would bring up evidence discovered by some archaeologist, and they said, well, he was a Christian. He, that's so that right. means nothing he discovered, we can't use that. That's, that's biased. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's the genetic fallacy. Where okay. did this idea come from? Right. Uh, another example is... And we've heard this from atheists, that people believe in God because in ancient times they wanted to explain things like lightning. So they came up with the idea of God. Okay. All right. Well, that's genetic fallacy. Even if that were true, which it's not true, but even if it were true, it wouldn't have any bearing on whether or not God exists. So you, right. can't, you can't depend on that for your argument of how something ca- how something came about whether it's true or false. And besides, we all know that lightning comes from Thor, the thunder god, right? Yeah, there you go. There you go. I <laughs> right. already know that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, let's do the last one on our list. Now, we've got a couple minutes left, so this one is called Tukoku. All right? Now, another fancy name. A lot of these have these fancy names. You can forget about the fancy name. Don't have to remember that. Just remember that this happens when you dismiss someone's point because they don't follow their own advice, okay? okay? So they don't they don't do something that they complain about, so you dismiss their argument. Okay. For example, don't tell me not to smoke, you smoke. Right. Right? If somebody who smokes tells you, "Listen, you shouldn't smoke. Smoking is really bad for you." Right. And then like you a come back telling and, their child that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's not an argument. It may be that smoking is bad, even though the person smokes. Right. Here's another example. What's wrong with speeding? Everybody does it. Okay. Right? Or don't tell me not to speed. You speed. (laughs) Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. But that's not an argument. So that is to quote quote. That's kind of a twisted logic that, okay, if you can do wrong, I can do wrong. (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah, that's right. So that is... Bad thinking skills. Well, we hope that everyone enjoyed the lesson on logical fallacies today. Next week, we're going to get into what makes an argument good or bad, and what kinds of argue, what kinds of reasons do ha- people have for believing something rather than another another thing. So okay. we'll get into that more in depth. Join us again for more reasons to believe, and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. <laughs>